Welcome to the Waiting Room Revolution. Today, we are talking with Penny Hawkins, otherwise known as Nurse Penny. She's a hospice nurse and influencer. She shares stories and advice on her TikTok and Instagram platforms, encouraging everyone to have open conversations about death and end-of-life care. We talked to her about her experiences working in hospice, using social media as a platform to help normalize death, and to get her thoughts about how to spread the message about the benefits of early palliative care. Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Welcome to the podcast, Nurse Penny. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Gosh, it's so good to see you. It's so good to see you. I was just like, when you asked me to do this, I was like, oh, I thought you'd never ask. I love really? you. I love you. I love no, you. I love you. But my first question was just, you know, would love to hear about what led you to a career in hospice nursing. Well, there's kind of a couple layers to that. Uh, first of all, I always start off with, I'm an old nurse. I did not st- start nursing school until I was 40 years old. So I became an LPN when I was 42. Um, I went to nursing school out of necessity because my husband and I decided to get a divorce and I had been a stay at home mom and had no career. I was a bartender prior to all of that. Uh, And so I decided on nursing school and about a year before that decision uh, that we made his stepmother who he was very close to got cancer and she died within about three months. She ended up in a hospice care center. And I went to see her there. And then she eventually went to home hospice. And I was just fascinated and awestruck by the hospice nurses. I was just like, oh, my gosh, they are so amazing. Um, You know, not only compassionate, which you expect from a hospice nurse, but knowledgeable and just really practiced with a lot of autonomy. And I was just really uh, intrigued by all of that. Uh, So but another layer to this is that. Uh, I had suffered from death anxiety when I was in my thirties. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I had never seen a dead body uh, before I became a hospice nurse. And, uh, and so I had a kind of a morbid curiosity about it, I guess. I, it's kind of one of those things where if you're spray, afraid of spiders, maybe you should be around spiders more. So you're less afraid of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I kind of felt like, hmm, maybe I should examine this a little bit and see, you know, like what this is all about. Um, and then the third layer to that is that in my younger years, I, I really screwed up a lot. I was into drugs and alcohol and, uh, ended up in jail a few times and, and did turn my life around. Um, but felt like I wanted to do something that was really meaningful and impactful. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do service work. So I, I kind of was like, okay, it's either going to be working in a nursing home because at that time there was a lot of abuse going on in nursing homes and I wanted to be someone to make a difference or being a hospice nurse. Uh, I didn't think I could be a hospice nurse at first because I didn't even know that LPNs could work in hospice. Uh, so I figured I'll, I'll do what I can do. And then when I become an RN, I'll work in hospice. Um, but circumstances about a year after um, getting my LPN and working as an LPN um, led me to look into a position in a hospice care center. And in fact, they were hiring LPNs. And I was like, oh. and so I started doing that and, um, and have been, you know, pretty much a hospice nurse the whole time ever since then. 
Uh, I did get my RN. I got my BSN. I worked in the ER for a couple of months uh, during that time and, and hated it. Um, just always been um, really drawn to hospice. And I um, am giving you such a long, like long story long, giving you such a long answer to your one question, but just um, a little additional information. I have worked in, I started in a hospice care center. I worked there for many years. Uh, so I did the, um, at the bedside in your face, death and dying is what I call it. Mm -hmm. uh, I was a home hospice case manager for several years, and now I'm currently a hospice quality manager for a very large hospice agency. So I've kind of done everything within hospice. I do regulatory and quality and education and patient care and all of it. I'm just steeped in the hospice field. Okay. That's incredible. All of it. Every last bit of it from, from your early, um, excitement uh, to where you've landed now and aren't we all so lucky about the path that you've taken this sort of serpentine like path to this incredible work that you're doing um so it was meant to be penny oh, yeah mind if i call you penny i feel like i should call oh. you hospice nurse penny Is no don't please <laughs> call me penny so hospice nurse penny um are you the first hospice nurse to get onto TikTok and do your thing? Like, are you the original person on there? I I don't think I'm the necessarily the original. I, I think I'm the first one to kind of do what I've been doing, which is really focusing more on educating about hospice and normalizing death and dying. Yeah. Uh, nurse Hadley was on uh, before me and she's really more... Uh, about kind of telling inspirational stories about her patients. She never really goes into a lot of education. Um, but yeah, I would say, you know, there's a few of us that have now pretty big accounts. And, and of those, I, I'm, I am the first one who really got on and started doing that normalizing the death and dying. I definitely am the first one who started doing it by, uh, making uh videos that included tiktok trends and dancing and dark humor uh i can i can hang my hat on that for sure <laughs> but yeah i i am the first one. i'm the og i guess they say right yeah so how many years so when so take me so first of all social media is very new to me um so i don't know are you dating yourself like five years back eight years back two years back when did your tiktok career start my TikTok career started uh, in 2020 in the spring okay. when the pandemic happened and we had the shutdown. Wow. Did so. you ever think that in such a short period of time, you would be such an international influencer? I, I never did. I, I, when I got on TikTok, it wasn't even to do what I do. I downloaded the app and actually was trying to learn how to shuffle dance. That was my first experience on TikTok. And um, I, I have a history of being a bit of a performer. I sang in a rock band when I was younger. I was in community theater. I've always been creative and artistic. And so then I kind of started doing some of the fun little trends that are on there. It had nothing to do with nursing or hospice nursing. 
And, um, and then one day I decided to tell a story about a hospice patient and it went viral. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, people are really interested in hearing about this. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really what, what got me going is, is understanding that uh, I had, uh, I've all, let me just tell you, I am very, very passionate about end of life care. Mm-hmm. I'm very passionate about it. I'm an advocate for hospice. I, you know, I just really feel strongly about educating people about the death and dying process because I've been with so many families who mm-hmm. were upset and scared over what they were seeing. That was really a normal part of the dying process. And when I said to them, oh, that's normal, mm-hmm. you, you know, the relief was palpable. You could just see them, oh, that's normal. Yeah. And so I've always been a passionate advocate for uh, really, you know, good end of life education and, and, um, and death care. And, and so I realized that, oh, I've got this kind of grassroots platform where I can reach more people. Mm -hmm. And at a time when I had gone from doing patient care into a, a more administrative role, I was missing that connection. So it, it really helped me to be reaching out to people and to have them respond so favorably and tell me, gosh, you really made a difference for me. I was, you know, really suffering from guilt. And then you told me that it's okay if they don't eat at the end of life, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that's really what um, motivated me to continue. So Penny, you have obviously hit the gone viral mark on TikTok, which is incredible that your message is hitting so many people. I mean, I'm wondering, is there any downside to this? I mean, do you ever get upset when people say things that you don't agree with or argue with you? One of the things that that upsets me more than anything is when people say negative things about hospice care, mm-hmm. like when they when they say that, um, you know, hospice killed my grandma or they just give medication to kill people. Yeah. And, yeah. and, uh, and I get annoyed and sometimes I try to approach it like, let me educate you. But most of the time I, I clap back at them because it's an ignorant statement. You know, if, if somebody believes in their heart of hearts that maybe hospice did something that hastened the death of their person. Um, and they genuinely think that, and they, and they put a comment out there that, indicates that's how they feel, then I'm, I'm going to respond to that more kindly and say, this is actually why that isn't the case. But Mm -hmm. when they just say hospice killed my grandma, you know, Mm -hmm. that's like, okay, put on the boxing gloves, boom, you know, like. (laughs) So, so my fault to that is, so it sounds like, you you know, you see your role as, as an educator and, you know, you enjoy meeting, um, you know, talking to the public and others about, the benefits of, of hospice cares. Do you ever feel that there are limits to education and you want to feel like that is not enough? Like there are limits to just educating and you're saying the same thing over and over and over again? Like, do you ever get frustrated that you're beating your head against the wall? I don't really, I don't, um, you know, because I, and I have addressed the same types of questions all throughout this whole, you know, couple of years that I've been doing this, like people ask me, you know, why a person on um, that's a full code status can be on hospice. Mm -hmm. And I don't mind re-educating on these things because I'm also aware that the TikTok platform is massive. There's billions of people on it, I think, you know, at least hundreds of millions Mm -hmm. and not everybody sees all the videos. And so I, I don't, I don't get frustrated with questions like that. Um, 
I, I don't, I feel like it's okay to keep, to keep repeating myself on these things because not everybody is going to see that same video. Sometimes actually, when I get those, those questions, those comments about hospice killing people, it just allows me another opportunity to try to reinforce the fact that we don't. Yeah. So, so I don't really get frustrated um, with that type of stuff. So you sort of like take it as, okay, this is important Intel coming from the universe that we need to educate more and uh, more directly. And so I'll take this as an opportunity, yes. <laughs> even though inside yeah. it would be steaming. Yeah. And, and actually I'll tell you where my frustration lies. And that is with TikTok suppressing videos where we are talking about death and dying. And, and I feel like when I use the hashtag normalized death, my videos don't seem to get as much traction. I know Julie has been um, showing some videos of people dying and they get censored almost immediately. I've had the same thing happen over the last couple of years. You know, I'll pull a video off of YouTube of a person with a death rattle and I'll put it up and it will get censored and then the views will slow down on it. And, and then I'll have people who say, you should have put a trigger warning. Oh my gosh. I don't know if you saw the video I did where there's a comedian who says, this is me on my deathbed. Mm -hmm. And I say, oh, let me help you out. That's not really what a person looks like when they're on their deathbed. And then I imitate what an actual dying person looks like. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'm really good at it, according to the people who saw it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and some people said that, you know, that needed a trigger warning. And I, first of all, it's me alive pretending that I'm dead. And second of all, I don't feel like, and I will use trigger warnings sometimes, but I don't feel like I want to really do that a lot because death is a normal process. And I am trying to destigmatize, you know, death talk. I'm trying to destigmatize that. I'm trying to help people to be uh, more accepting of the fact that that we're going to die, period. We are. And we are going to have a better death if we're accepting of that. And our families are going to have a better time uh, with our death. And we will have a better time with our family's death if we mm -hmm. understand what that process looks like and we know what is normal. So uh, to me, it's defeating the purpose to put a trigger warning on my videos. Yeah. Because the whole point is, I'm trying to show you this is normal, this is natural, a dying person is a beautiful thing. You mm -hmm. know, you don't have to look at them and, and be, you know, repelled by how they look. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm, I'm with you on that one, for sure. Um, part of normalizing it means that we don't say, oh, trigger warning. This is such an awful thing you're about to see. Because it's very normal, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, can I tell you what? what we have been doing yes I want to hear your thoughts about it okay okay so Sienna and I have been working in palliative care uh, for lots of years but what we're trying to do is educate people from the beginning of their illness and so we're trying to take what we know from end of life care and trying to tease it apart and make it more palatable more accessible um, less scary um, from the very start of an illness because we've spent so much time trying to change the end and it doesn't seem to be changing for people. We're trying to change the beginning, which is new, new frontier for us. Like I'm a palliative care doctor. I, I am an expert in end of life care. 
I don't meet people at the beginning of their illness. So it's really been interesting reverse engineering what I know down here and putting it up here. But you can see on TikTok, it's interesting because it's a hard sell, you know, like, I don't know. What do you think of that? Uh, for, well, first of all, I think what you're doing is fabulous. I mean, everything you just said resonates with me, like completely. I, I feel like, you know, people cannot, if they don't know that they're dying, how can they, you know, really embrace that last part of their life? And I've seen that so many times as a hospice nurse, when patients come on service and they have like a week left, you know, or I actually, I was just, you know, writing a couple stories down the other day of patients who had no idea how much time they actually had left, including one young woman who was 28, who said, uh, you know, I told her, um, you know, the doctor thinks that you have weeks to months left and she flipped out. She thought she had a year. The doctor told her she had a year. And I'm, I'm just like, what doctor doesn't know that you have to have a prognosis of six months or less in the US to be on hospice mm -hmm. and didn't tell her. Mm -hmm. And I've even worked with hospice nurses who, who would say, I remember being in a meeting one time and I was talking with them about the importance of having um, those discussions with the admit nurses, having discussions with their patients about their code status. And, and one of them said to me, well, you know, if they're young, they may not be ready to have that conversation yet. And I was blown away. It was like, you have to have that conversation with them. People have the right to know that that's what they're faced with. Um, I, lo I love that you're, you're looking at it that way, you know, that you want to start earlier on because I think that that really is what's missing it it's, needs to start down the line before they get to hospice and they need to have those conversations I understand why doctors don't want to have those conversations because really if you're not going when you're in medical school you're learning how to cure people right you're learning how to treat them you're learning how to cure them uh, it's not until you probably get out of medical school, they might touch on palliative care, right? In hospice, when you're in medical school, I know for nursing, we had a day lecture, that was it, you mm -hmm. know, but really the focus is on getting people better, you know? And, and yeah. so that is where the mindset is of most medical professionals, doctors and nurses alike. That's where they're thinking. And it's hard for them to have those conversations because nobody ever taught them how to do it. Yeah. So yeah. I think it's really fantastic that you're, you're, you know, trying to, and I agree with what you're doing as far as um, reaching out to the public, mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, they're the ones who really care, yeah. right? They're the yeah. ones who really care about it. I know in the U.S., Medicare has only recently started paying for doctors to have end-of-life conversations. Prior to that, they couldn't bill for those conversations. And so they weren't motivated to even have them. Mm -hmm. But really, the person who's dying is they have they have the most skin in the game. So really, that's where you need to go with your with your education. And, you know, we're we're. Um... We're not necessarily saying you have to tell people that they're dying when they get a diagnosis of COPD or Parkinson's or dementia. It's really just learning what do those real conversations look like so early at 
a stage of readiness that might be very different than when you and I meet patients. Mm-hmm. That stuff is not on their radar, yet we still have a responsibility to invite them to be realistic along the entire way, no matter what chapter they're in, to know there's another chapter around the corner and another chapter after that. And each chapter is going to look different and you're not going to be the same person that you were, you know, last year. So again, that's been really new learning for us because that's not my language. My language is more around, you know, talking about dying and death. Um, So what does that look like upstream at the beginning is, has to be very different because they don't Mm -hmm. want to hear that yet, but we need to prepare them. Um, So we're just hoping to learn and figure out how to do that so that you and I in the future, like 10 years from now, are seeing people come to us more prepared, more in the know, knowing what they want, having spent the time the way they want, and not so shocked when you tell a 28-year-old who everyone else has known is getting to the end of her life, that she should know as soon as everyone else knows and not be the last one to know she's got weeks left. That is so unfair. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. And, and yeah, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be like, well, now you have COPD. So just so you know, you're going to die. Yeah. It doesn't have to be like that. It's, you know, we are going to focus on uh, what we can do to try to improve your life and extend your life. But, you know, if things don't go as planned, you know, what, what do you see for yourself? How does that look for you? I especially think that's important with um, uh, cancer patients and that oncologists need to be better about having those conversations. Because I feel like I always say, you know, if I had cancer, I would want an oncologist to be optimistic, because if they're not, they're not going to do their best to treat you. But I want them to be realistic, too. And Mm -hmm. I've had, you know, way too many patients who never should have had chemotherapy and, and uh, including a patient who the day that he died told me I never should have had chemotherapy. That was the worst mistake I made. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he started chemo and three weeks later he was dying and, you know, his quality of life was crap. Yeah. You know, he didn't feel good from the chemo, of course, you know, so I feel like, um, y- like I said, you want that, you want that optimism well, you want realism too. You know, they have to be willing to um, have those what if conversations. Like, not saying that's not that's going to happen right now, but you know, when we start to see you know, this is a progressive disease, eventually, this is probably something that's going to contribute to the end of your life. You know, and in a in a nice way that gets gets them thinking, so that they're not. Exactly. By the way, you have yeah. COPD now; it's stage four you're going to go on hospice and um, they're going to help you with things. Yeah. <laughs> and then they come to us and we're like, what do you know about hospice? Oh, well, the doctor said that you, that you guys could give me a lot of extra help. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a warm handoff. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. Do you, so we, do you know what we call what you just described upstream? We call it walking two roads, hoping for the best and planning for the rest. So yes. we, we, we try to introduce that, that people, we always want to have hope, but, um, but hoping for the, but what does that mean to you? And how can we plan for the rest? And what is the rest? And what is that? What do you think it is? And what, you know, do we know as clinicians? Um, and we can fill in some of those gaps. So um, it is about meeting people where they're at with the language. Um, 
and sort of, you know, doing the dance to see, oh, they are more death positive and they, they've seen this before. And so they do know. And so we can not be afraid to have these conversations or they're a bit shy. So let's, let's keep, um, you know, exploring this, keep inviting them to the conversation because they're not ready today, but they might be next time as they see changes. Mm -hmm. yeah. What I used to tell my patients um, when they were wanting to know how much time I thought they had left, I would always say, you know, that we put time in time frames, you know, weeks to months, days to weeks, hours to days, minutes to hours. And I'm going to just give you my best guess because that's all I can really do. Nobody really knows for sure. But I'm going to give you the worst case scenario. And that way, if I'm wrong, it's a gift. But if I'm right, you're prepared. Mm -hmm. And the other part of that is talking with families about when they should come and visit and explaining to them what the dying process is like, because I've had so many calls with people who lived, you know, out of town or out of state. And they're like, when is a good time to come? It's now is the good time to come. Because if I tell you that I think your dad has three weeks left, he's not going to be awake that whole time. There's going to be a point where he cannot converse with you anymore. So sooner is always better than later. But yeah, it's the same. It's like, I'm going to give you that worst case scenario, just so you're prepared for that. You know, it's the mm -hmm. same thing, hope for the best and plan for the rest. And I think, you know, it's really, it's the best way to, to treat yeah. you know, the situation. Because we know that humans can accommodate both. They can hope and entertain the what ifs at the same time. Just because you let your mind wander into worst case scenarios doesn't dishonor your hope. You can do both at the same time. And I think that that's where people and healthcare providers run into trouble. They feel like if they're not being uber cheer cheerleaders and like have this toxic positivity um, that they're, um, you know, dishonoring uh, a person's hope. Um, but we know that hope can remain resilient, even in the face of reality, you just change what you hope for, uh, you know, and so I'm, and I'm like you, Penny, um, there's so many people that think that they're going to remain stable and then just die suddenly, you know, like a light switch when really we tell families to come now because we know this is a fading. The person will not stay like this in this chapter. It's a downward trend of um, fatigue and weakness. And so this is the best they're going to be right now. Um, people have a right to know that families and patients, because if they want to do stuff, now's the time to do it. Exactly. We shouldn't tell them that it's like, just because we say, oh, your prognosis is in three months, that you're going to stay completely the same and lights out in three months. No, there's a slope happening here. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 What you just said about hope is so true. I always say, you know, hospice is not about giving up hope. It's about changing what hope looks like for a yeah. person, you know, helping them to avoid the hospital and the ER and to, you know, check off their bucket list and do the things that they really want to be able to accomplish before their, their death. Yeah. You know, people are surprised when, you know, like if I do a video that talks about, um, a hospice patient wanting to go, go to the casino. Mm -hmm. Well, they're, 
they're surprised, but they're like, aren't they? Wait, what? They're dying. Are you? Yeah, we're all dying. I mean, we are, but hospice patients um, don't necessarily have to be on their deathbed, Mm -hmm. you know? In fact, we don't want them to be. We want them to come to us when they still have life left and they are able to go out and do fun things, you know, that we try to facilitate that for them. Because I think that the public see dying as lying on your bed in the last hours and couple of days. I don't think they appreciate that it is a phase, a chapter um, in life that lasts, you know, for months, like your body starts dying with these illnesses months before you're actually dead. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's just masked by a lot of things and we don't really call it out, right? Oh, it must Mm -hmm. be the treatment that's making me so tired or losing so much weight or my appetite's low because of breathlessness or whatever. But these are signals that our body has started a very normal process. Yeah, I like the way you put it, fade, fading out. I think when I have been to the same school, I feel like we're talking, I'm like, yeah, that's what I think too. Yeah, exactly. I know it's like you're taking the words right out of my brain because uh, all of it, all of it, you know. And and that's that's actually, you know, really heartening because if you think about it, um, if we were just the only ones out there that were trying to do this, uh, for one thing, we wouldn't be as believable, right? Like when other people see us, um, if we're the only one, they're going to be like, oh, nobody else is saying that. Yeah. So, and that's why I like to, to like stitch your videos or, you know, videos of patients who are, are on hospice now and they have the aha, you know, I, I like to do that because I feel like, um, I want people to understand, you know, that what I'm saying is true. I, I know what I'm talking about and, uh, that other people have that same experience and knowledge about it. And I think it, the more of us that are out there, you know, banging on the drum, the more people are going to benefit from that. And, and for me, when it comes to TikTok, even with all of the uh, frustration that I have over them, you know, shadow banning my videos, uh, not pushing them out and giving me community guideline violations, I still get people on all my, all of my social media platforms who tell me that I've made a difference for them. So through our work and this podcast, What we are essentially trying to do is create a movement where patients and families can take our message and insist on getting the care that they want and to leach out a palliative approach to care, even if their doctors or nurses are saying things like, oh, you're not eligible yet. I'm curious, how have you been successful in spreading your message? I mean, what can we learn from your experience on social media? Well, I'm kind of in this. I mean, I'm, I'm in this, that same bucket, you know, as far as the end of life part of it. Um, So I'm not even sure how, I mean, I think, I think the answer really is still, even though you're trying to get it further upstream is focusing on what people want when they're downstream, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and, and just being and real talk and just being real with people. And I, I, I did this, uh, we have this, uh, there's a um, web-based palliative care training called CAPC. Have you heard of that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah. I've done a, a lot of, I just recertified in, in my hospice uh, for my hospice certification and mm-hmm. needed to do a lot of continuing education. So I did a bunch of CAPC modules and the communication modules and, and um, just really liked this 
approach of if this, then that, like if this, like we were talking about earlier, like, okay, in the perfect world, yes, but what about if that, like the, the, the forked road, right? It could go this way, but what if it goes that way? And trying to get people to understand that there is no if, it's mm-hmm. a matter of when, right? It's a matter of when. Um, and just, um, you know, trying to get people to understand that they need to be their own advocate. People yeah. need to speak up for themselves. And I think really being honest about the healthcare system and how it's failing in that department mm-hmm. is important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I actually think that's a really great approach to it because I, I think it, it's, it's not like it's an us against them type of thing, but it's a, like, you have to be responsible for your own life. Even though you have professionals that are going to help you with this, you need to be educated and understand, you know, everything about your disease. Yeah. And, you know, approach it like that. That's exactly what our philosophy is at this point, that the patient and the family open your eyes uh, because you, you need to be, you know, the CEO of your own healthcare journey. Uh, you know, don't sit back and be passive or else you're just going to get blown around, uh, you know, like a buoy floating all over the place, no anchor. Like you need to take control over your illness journey. Um, or don't complain really. Like this is not a rule that you just let happen and let wash over you wherever it lands. No, you need to take the bull by the horns and to to be edu- to educate yourself um, of all the twists and turns and the hurdles and the bus stops along the way. And um, or else you're always going to jump from one puddle to the next. You're going to find yourself from crisis to crisis in a reactive kind of feeling and never feel like you're ahead of the game. You know, and and also want to say too, empowerment doesn't just come from telling people that they need to do that, but giving them permission to do that. It's okay for you to do that. You know, we have still a lot of people, a lot of generations of people who would not question the doctor. They will just do what the doctor tells them. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's very important to give people that permission to say, it's okay for Mm -hmm. you to ask questions. It's Mm -hmm. okay for you to seek other opinions or to not take the advice of your provider. Mm -hmm. You know, that's okay. So I I think that's a, a, a very important message to send is, yes, you are in charge of this. And it's okay for you to be in charge of this. Wouldn't you agree, um, Penny, that most people, once they, you know, um, digest the news, that are grateful that someone was honest with them? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. I've had very few patients. Well, first of all, I always feel people out like, what do you want to know? What do you know? What do you want to know? Um, I've rarely had somebody that said, I don't want to know, don't tell me they want to know. Um, and again, you know, I was, I was writing these story. I am right. I'm writing a book. Uh, and so I was writing these stories the other day and, uh, about, uh, people who didn't know. And this woman came over from the hospital with her husband who was actively dying and they were moving him from the gurney to the bed. And I said to her, I pulled her aside and I said, has anybody told you how long they think he has? And she said, no, and I really want to know. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. I think he's very close to death, and I don't think you should leave tonight. 
Mm. And uh, she was so grateful. People are grateful. They want to know. Yeah. And it's like, uh, and with the, the dying person, it, I always, I'm amused by people who say, don't tell him he's dying. We don't want him to know he's dying. First of all, he has the right to know. He has the right to grieve his own life mm-hmm. and his own death, mm-hmm. you know, but also I, I think they know. I think people know, you know, Barbara Carnes says we live in our bodies. We know what's happening. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the, the problem is then you have a patient who knows that they're dying and a family who knows that the patient's dying, but they don't want to have this conversation with each other because they don't know that they know and they don't know that he knows. And they're missing out on such an opportunity for really, really meaningful end of life conversations and closure and goodbye by not having that conversation. Completely. I would say that most people that when they ask me how much time they have, usually, of course, I thank them for asking such an important question. And then I say, um, before I answer that, I'm just curious, uh, many of our patients have a gut feeling themselves about how much time they have. Do you, have you had a gut feeling? And most of the time they're bang on. Really? Oh, they're bang on. They'll say to me, you know what? And they look around because they haven't said it in front of their family. I'm positive. I won't make it till Christmas or I'll be lucky if I make it to Thanksgiving. And, you know, everyone around says, don't say that. And, you know, but I say, you know, um, is it important for you? uh, Is it important that I weigh in on that? Would you like me to confirm or not your gut feeling? And everyone really wants to know that people need permission that it's okay to talk about this stuff. um, And that uh, it's, hard but powerful at the same time it's like a bubble is burst between the conspiracy of silence between families and patients and then opens up all this opportunity to say okay now what let's get into gear here because if that's the case we've got stuff to say we've got stuff to do and this is our time (laughs) you know like we don't want to rip people off of that. Yeah. Yeah. Some of my favorite memories of working at the hospice care center are patients who were, you know, they they were going to miss out on the next big thing that they look forward to, like for example, Christmas. Yeah. And so the family would decorate the room in Christmas decorations in July. Yeah. You know, experience Christmas again. And, and, you know, that is what those conversations can facilitate you know, that those really important, meaningful things to people. I think it's just, um, it's just, and everybody deserves to have that. Mm-hmm. Everybody deserves to have that. And sometimes, you know, even when it's hard for them to get that news, once it sinks in, then they start to, uh, you know, and accept it, then they're able to focus their attention on what's really meaningful to them. And there was a woman on TikTok Jessica Christine, I don't know if you saw her, she had colon cancer. And, you know, whenever somebody makes a video uh, about having cancer or whatever, I get tagged. And I was tagged in that video a hundred times and people were saying, please help her. She was crying and just totally distraught because she got this hospice Mm -hmm. referral. Now she's like going on hospice and she was devastated and crying. And so I finally replied with the video and I said, I know you want me to help her, but here's the thing. She just was told that she's dying 
and she is going through a normal grief response and that's okay. That is okay. Let her grieve. There's nothing I can do to make this better for her. Mm -hmm. And then pretty soon she started doing videos about her bucket list. Mm-hmm. And she was talking about wanting to have beignets. And so people were sending her beignet mix. And a guy from Louisiana drove to where she was. He has a, a, a beignet uh, food truck. Mm-hmm. And he drove across state lines to go to where she lived and made her beignets. And so she was then embracing the rest of her life. And mm-hmm. I loved that. And I, and I did another video and I said, look, here's the thing. She mm-hmm. needed to go through this acceptance, yeah. grieving to acceptance and now look what she has done with that she is really making the last part of her life meaningful so yeah it hurts to get that news at first to find out definitively oh I've only got this amount of time left Mm -hmm. but it does benefit the person in the end because now they know what they can focus on during that time that's a great story Penny thank you so much for joining us today thank you for having me Penny, you have made my weekend, actually. This is the greatest Friday evening, and I feel like we've had a date, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've been looking forward to this for a very, very long time. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. You can visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com, to learn more about our movement and how you can join it. The podcast is produced by myself, Kayla McMillan, Valerie Bishop, Shilpa Jyothi Kumar, and Maggie Sivak. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketsap.